Father in heaven, we do thank you that Jesus is where he is right now, ever living and pleading for us as our great high priest, our great high priest whose name is love. We do, Father, have a strong and perfect plea. You've taken our guilt away in him. You've taken away our shame. You've made an end of all of our sin through Jesus, our sinless Savior who bled and died for us. And Father, this morning we look back to his cross and remember what he did for us and we hold fast to the promises that we have of the life that awaits. But this morning, Father, especially as we look to your word, we want to look up to where he is now, the risen lamb, our perfect spotless righteousness where we are hid with him on high. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. Open your Bibles with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Were this the first century, the one thing we would not be doing on the Sunday after Jesus' resurrection is talking about his ascension. In fact, we would not be preaching about his ascension five weeks after his resurrection because he was still around. This morning we will consider the subject of the glorious ascension of Jesus Christ, an easily overlooked event, but no insignificant part of Christ's glorious work for us. Our text this morning will be Luke 24, 50 through 53 and Acts 1, 4 through 11, We will start, however, by reading the first 11 verses of Acts, as there is there for us some context that will be helpful. Let's read together Acts 1, 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they gathered, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Well, what must have Jesus' disciples been feeling when Jesus left? What must they have been feeling when Jesus left. Luke is the author of both the Gospel of Luke and Acts, or what has been ta- called the, what is called the Acts of the Apostles. These were written to go together, and we can think of them as part one and part two of the same story. Luke writes both to a man named Theophilus and begins his second volume with a brief summary of the first. He writes in verse 1, In the first book, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. And after that brief summary, Luke picks up where he left off. But not really. He kind of picks up where he left off. But first, he rewinds the story a bit. You notice that verses 4 through 11 were about Jesus' ascension to heaven. Well, Luke covered that same ground at the end of of his gospel, Luke 24, 50 through 53, which reads this way. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted for them from them and was carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple blessing God. 
Now, you'll notice that these two accounts are a bit different. He didn't copy and paste, although he certainly could have. However, he would have done that. He already wrote this story. The account at the end of part one is quite short, though to describe, as though to describe the event quickly and from a distance. But at the beginning of part two, the camera gets in tight and catches the dialogue for us. If part one left us hanging, wondering what they may have said, wondering what it looked like for Jesus to ascend into heaven the way he did, then Luke expands on this for us at the beginning here of part two. And this is intentional. He didn't just forget that he covered that ground when he picked up the pen a week later or whenever he penned Acts in relationship to Luke. No, he is more, it is intentional and it is more than just about answering our curiosity. It's like a sequel that begins by revisiting a moment in the previous film. A clip like this is meant to highlight a specific moment and expand on that moment in order to set the stage for all that follows. We've seen this before. A few movies come to mind. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Or Gremlins and Gremlins the New Batch. By the way, I learned this week uh, an interesting movie factoid in looking for sequel examples. Did you know that the scene in which the gremlin explodes in the microwave was particularly influential to the idea that some films are too light to be rated R, but a little too mature for PG? So you can thank the gremlins for the rating of PG-13. There you go. But if those are still in your Netflix queue, Lord of the Rings does this, does it not? The second film beginning with a retake or a... The story of how Smeagol came into the ring as he'll play prominently in that film. So you get a little bit of his background and it sets the stage for the whole film that follows. So it is with the book of Acts. Luke's gospel has had a marvelous conclusion with Jesus carried away. But there are some unresolved tensions, some yet unfulfilled promises restated even moments before Jesus' departure. Part one was crying out for a sequel. And now in Acts, Luke replays that final scene, this time more slowly, and this time everyone had a lapel mic on so we could hear exactly what they were saying. And by doing this, Luke is giving us needed context with which to understand the book that follows. And he is communicating to us the deep significance of this event. But before we look at the ascension directly, this is a good and rare occasion to consider what happened between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. This is not often covered ground for good reason. It's not often covered in the New Testament. We would come across it in exposition in as much as we as often as we come across it in our preaching through books. It is not brought up often. Um, there's also a lot of other exciting stuff happening around it. Jesus' death, his resurrection, the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost, but his ascension was important and what happened between his resurrection and ascension is important. So let's take a look at that intermission first. Luke says that Jesus hung around for 40 days. You wouldn't have guessed, right? Most of us would think ascensions, maybe the next Sunday. No, he hung around for 40 days. What was he doing during those 40 days? Acts 1, 3 tells us what he was doing. First, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. Luke tells us about some of these in Luke 24. Jesus appeared to two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in the scriptures all the things concerning himself. Their hearts burned within them. And just as they recognized him, the text says Jesus vanished from their sight. Poof, he was gone. Then later he appeared among his disciples again. Peace be to you, he said. And they were frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost or a spirit of some kind. Jesus had them touch his hands and his feet, still pierced and still mystified. He asked them for a fish, and they gave him a broiled fish. I think fish grew on trees in the first century. They always seemed to be within reach. And he ate that broiled fish right in front of them. Ghosts do not eat broiled fish. Bodies eat broiled fish fish and Jesus had one. 
what kind of body was this? Well, now that's a good question because it can disappear. Not a normal one. We can say that much. This body belongs to another world and to be exact, a new world, a new creation. Paul tries to explain this for the better part of the chapter of, of a, a chapter in 1 Corinthians 15 and it's still hard to grasp. There he's describing our future bodies which will be like Christ's. He says that our present body is like a bare kernel of what's to come. He compares them, one's earthly, one's heavenly. One's imperishable, one's perishable, one's imperishable. Mortal, immortal. The sun has glory and the stars have glory. So this body has a glory, but our future body will have a greater glory. One is like the man from dust, Adam, and the other is like the second man's body, Christ, the man from heaven. One dies, one doesn't. So that's like Jesus' body. He has a special body, and he's running around, showing up, disappearing, proving that he's got it. The Apostle Paul wrote about the period between the resurrection and ascension in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 7, when he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was raised that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are all still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Now this is just an aside. But if this is not true, why would he include this? Luke is a careful historian, but both Paul and Luke are human beings which come equipped with common sense. If you're embellishing things and making things up, don't say things that can be easily, easily discredited. Like, for example, Jesus appeared after his resurrection to 500 people at one time. No doubt there were people alive who could testify to this, and it's precisely why it's there. The claims like this are consistent with the truthfulness of God's word, aren't they? So Jesus presented himself alive to them by many proofs. And he also, we're told, appeared to them speaking about the kingdom of God. So he was appearing, vanishing, and disappearing, proving he had a body. They weren't seeing things. They were seeing him, and he wanted them to know that. And he was also, in addition to this, teaching them about himself and teaching them about his kingdom. Now these must have been good times. Can you imagine Jesus, with you, in a glorified body, teaching about himself in the kingdom after the resurrection. These must have been good times. You ever struggled to believe or to have boldness in sharing about Jesus? Had a question you might like to ask him? When people ask, who would you like to meet throughout history if you could pick one person? They often have to exclude Jesus, especially if they're asking a Christian. That question would just be boring otherwise. The only thing cooler than meeting Jesus before the cross truly must be meeting him after the resurrection. The only thing cooler than meeting Jesus alive must be meeting Jesus alive from the dead. It would be amazing. And the only downside that I can think of is that just as he says something that blows your mind, he vanishes on you. At least before the cross, you could chase him around with the crowds. So how did the disciples respond when Jesus left them? Well, Luke tells us in verse 52 and 53 of chapter 24, they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. The disciples' response of worship means they had finally connected the dots. They understood that this was a man. Jesus had proven that clearly enough and they had walked with him. But that this was a divine man. This was God in the flesh. This was Emmanuel. This was the king of glory with them. They worshipped him after he was raised. But the text also says that they were filled with great joy. Did you catch that? What were they feeling? They were filled with great joy. Jesus left them and they were filled with great joy. Now that's worth exploring a bit. Can you think of one person that you deeply love that you would be glad to see leave? No. Uh, The people we love the most are even 
uh, it's good to get some time apart, right? So f- family relationships, our closest, can be prickly, and uh, days apart can be a good thing at times. But even if you were to say goodbye at the airport, there's often tears, right? And when you say goodbye to family, even if those, awkward, those, those relationships are awkward, it can be difficult. Well, Jesus, there's no, nothing complicated about that relationship. It was utterly sinless full of grace and truth. The disciples, it seems to me, were closer to a reasonable response in the upper room on the night of his arrest. Jesus says in John 16, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. So something happened between his res- his, this night in the upper room and his ascension. So that Jesus leaving is now a net gain in their minds. Maybe it was this blessing thing Jesus did. As he ascended, he, he stretched out his hands and gave them a blessing. So he's speaking to them as he's lifting off. That had to be meaningful. But it still seems to me that Jesus leaving is Jesus leaving. Doesn't it? So why were the disciples filled with joy when Jesus left? Well, it certainly wasn't because they thought he'd appear again. He had been disappearing and appearing. Well, this time he ascends in a body with a blessing. They know that this is it. Why, again, would Jesus' disciples be filled with great joy when he left? That is the question the rest of this sermon will aim to answer. And for a very satisfying answer to our question, we'll camp out in Luke's second account here in Acts 1, 4 through 11. And as we unpack this, we'll rummage around together the rest of the New Testament to find passages that are familiar to us, many of them very familiar, you'll hear, and many of them unfamiliar to show how crucial and central Jesus' ascension is, his ascended work is, all of the entailments that come with his ascension. We'll find that being gospel-centered means being centered on the whole work of Christ, including the ascension and its benefits. We should look back to the cross where Jesus died. We should look to his resurrection. We should look forward to all that he has promised and believe everything that he has promised is coming. And we should also look up where he is seated now and where he is now. The same reasons that it was good for Jesus to leave that day are the same reasons that it is good that he is where he is at right now and that he is doing what he is doing for us right now. In Acts 1, 4 through 11, we can see four reasons. There are four reasons why Jesus' disciples were filled with great joy when he left. The first reason. The first reason Jesus' disciples were filled with great joy when he left is because Christ ascended to the Father's right hand. He ascended to the Father's right hand. Verse 9, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now, they aren't filled with joy at Jesus' ascension because he ascended. We've already established that. But here we're saying because of where he ascended. In their minds, in their imaginations, he did not just disappear, although he did disappear from their sight. He ascended to the Father's right hand, and they knew that because he had told them precisely where he was going. Listen to this account of Jesus' suffering before the cross in Luke twenty-two sixty-three and following. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. And the day came, the assembly of the elders and the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And I ask you, if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So Jesus told even his enemies a sign that he would be victorious. Jesus said where he was going. Well, Peter also, this is where Peter said, and the apostles preached that Jesus went. Acts 5, 30 through 31. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. And that Jesus would ascend, exalted, is exactly the expectation of the Old Testament for the Messiah figure. In fact, it's precisely because Jesus didn't come exalted that the religious leaders didn't recognize him. Oh, now they should have. Their scriptures were clear. This man would also suffer as a suffering servant. He would ride in on a donkey. 
But they were looking to those promises of an exalted king, which are also there. And his disciples even, which asked if they could be seated at his right and his left hand and were expecting glory, didn't see it on the cross, although they should have seen it on and through the cross. And so they fled. They were expecting glory. So they're expecting an exaltation. In fact, the single most quoted verse in the entire, of the entire Old Testament in the New Testament is Psalm 110.1. And it's not a pithy, memorable kind of verse, like the kind we'd memorize, but it is one of the most key in the Old Testament for getting what Jesus did and who he is. David writes, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He's talking about his greater son to come. And he calls him Lord. And Jesus and the apostles will say, see, David is talking about a son who will be his own Lord. Jesus is God's divine son, the son of David. So we know where Jesus ascended to. But why is it good that he is there? Well, it means that his work is finished. From the cold, hard ground of Gethsemane, John 17 tells us that Jesus lifted his eyes up into heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you've given me to do. And Hebrews 1.3 famously says, After making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus was mocked and made a loser on the cross, but on his throne, Jesus is the winner of the universe. He finished what he came to do, and he confounded all human wisdom in how he did it. Utter exaltation through utter humiliation. Well, that crisis at the Father's right hand also means that Jesus is reigning sovereign over all things and over history. Peter tells us this in 3.22 of his first letter. Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. And listen how Paul describes Jesus' exalted position. Listen for the word all here. In Ephesians 1.20 and following, God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. And that is just another way of saying that Jesus is sovereign over everything. Can you think of a leader, a power, a thing, anything that does not fall under the umbrella category of all? You cannot. Jesus is over everything. And listen to how Paul goes to length to show Christ's supremacy over history. In 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 28. For by as a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then it is coming those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection to him. That God may be all in all. Can you hear the sound of the serpent's head being crushed under the weight of Jesus' sovereign foot in that text? That sound is there, and it's there whenever we read about the exaltation of Christ and his exalted position. The Father's right hand is where he is, so that is where he brings us and we come to him. We are welcome in the presence of Almighty God, as welcome as Jesus is. And we are mysteriously united to him, as Ryan preached about last week from Ephesians 2.6. God raised us with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the head of his church, giving us leaders, shepherding us. And there at the Father's right hand, Christ is interceding for us. 
Romans 8.34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. In the famous passage in Hebrews 4 about intercession. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive grace and help. Grace to help in time of need. Did we sing about this this morning? Not long ago? I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. Still, our name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. We sing the things that we believe, and it's good for our soul to sing them, isn't it? Those are good words. If it doesn't weigh heavy on you that Jesus is highly exalted and on his throne, I pray that it would. It does weigh highly a heavy on us when our elected officials take office, when kings take their throne. We even exalt in our enthroned leaders when they're cruel. Think of Kim Jong-il of North Korea who brutalized his people. We heard of the persecution this morning in Ron's prayer. If you spoke against him, you and your family in a ring around you of associates may be taken off and may be killed. Yet the nation mourned his death and wanted one to replace him as much like him as they could find, his grandson. Had him put on some pounds, made him look like his grandfather, and the nation rejoices. There's an insanity to us. We are incurably leader hungry. Whatever human leader we hope and honorable or not, they are all small, are they not? They are all limited. They can be in as many places as you and I can be at one time. They have to eat food to stay alive. They have to sleep to stay sane. They need people to like them. They worry about losing their job. They hope people and history will remember them well. How wonderful is it that Christ has ascended his throne? He has a perfect agenda. His best interests are always our best interests. Ultimately, he makes extravagant promises and he keeps all of them. And he is the one who writes history. And he brings us with him to the place of highest authority and honor when we come to him. Jesus is out of sight. But that is a very good thing. Because when he ascended, he ascended his throne, which is exactly where we need him to be. And it is happier there that, happier that he is there than he is here before his return. The first reason the disciples were filled with great joy when Jesus left was because Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. And the second reason the disciples were filled with great joy when Jesus left is because Christ ascended to send his spirit. He ascended to send his spirit. No doubt, even in the fullness of the meaning of Christ's ascension, if that was on their minds, Jesus still left. He was with them and then he was gone. But when we notice that Jesus repeated a certain promise to his disciples numerous times over, something clicks. It almost doesn't need to click. He told us explicitly. Look with me here in Acts 1, verse 4 and following. 
We have the promise of the Spirit. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now Luke includes this promise at the end of his gospel as well, but it's a little bit veiled there. He quotes Jesus as speaking of sending the promise of his father upon his disciples, of clothing them with power from on high. But now in Acts, the spirit, in part two, the spirit takes center stage. And the clearest place where Jesus expands on what the spirit will do and why he's sending him is in the upper room in John 14 through 16. Imagine reclining with Jesus around the table the evening before he's taken evening when he's taken. As Jesus, even though you may not be connecting all the dots, is talking about the meaning of the universe and the future of the world. And he says this in John 14, 25, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard from me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. And in John 16, 4 and following, But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Well, Jesus is preparing his disciples for the time when he will leave them by telling them that he will be more with them when he's gone than he was with them right at that table as they were talking. If Jesus did not ascend to heaven, he would be down here at one place at a time. You could be up close by maybe an inch away. You could be tens of thousands of miles away from Jesus. But only so many people could be near him at a time. Well, now having ascended, Jesus is personally omnipresent. He is with each of those personally by his spirit who have come to him by faith. He's everywhere, sees all things from his highly exalted position. He is actually present with all those who believe in him in a way that he could never have been with them if he were still here. So the Spirit is a big deal, is he not? And while the Spirit's role and purpose is to glorify the Son and point to the Son, our thoughts about the Spirit are still woefully inadequate. Consider that Jesus' public ministry began when the Spirit descended on him at his baptism. The Spirit applies the work of Christ to us. Without the Spirit, we would never know that Jesus died on the cross because we wouldn't have the Scriptures. And even if we had the Scriptures, we wouldn't believe a word in them. It'd be foolishness to us because our eyes would not be opened. Our hearts would not be regenerated to see what's there for what it is. The Spirit is our guarantee of everything that God has promised to us. It seals us for God. It's a sign that, like Jesus was God's Son, we're children of God as well, united to Him. The Spirit brings about spiritual fruit in our lives. The Spirit gives spiritual gifts. Spurgeon said this so well. Without the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. We are as ships without wind, or chariots without steeds, like branches without sap, we are withered. Like coals without fire, we are useless. And so we should glorify our triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, in the way we talk, think, and pray, and live. Well, if the gospel is, as Luke says, the story of all that Jesus did and said when he, before he was lifted up, 
then the book of Acts is the story of all that Jesus did and said after he was lifted up through his spirit, through his disciples. It is simply a happier thing. And in Jesus' own words, it is to our advantage that Jesus went away because when he was lifted up, he sat down at the right hand of the Father and he also ascended to send his spirit to us. And the third reason the disciples were filled with joy when Jesus left is because Christ ascended to gather his people. He ascended to the right hand of the Father, he ascended to send his spirit, and he also ascended to gather his people. Verse 6, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, to most of us, that question in verse 6 that the disciples asked Jesus feels a little left field. And we live way on this side of the ascension, so we know what's about to happen. First of all, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus left. He could return at any time, but we're aware that many people are yet unreached, and it could be yet another 2,000 years till he returns. But for them, Jesus hadn't ascended yet, and at least to date, they had been typically slow in connecting the dots. And let's consider what might have been in their minds. Ezekiel 36 and 37, for example, might have been in their minds, where God promises to forgive the sins of his people completely. And that when he does, he will send his spirit. He will restore them to their land. He will make Jerusalem beautiful. David's son will be king and will sit on his throne and God will establish with them an everlasting covenant. Well, Jesus has died to forgive sins. He inaugurated the new covenant and spoke of the new covenant before his death. He has promised the Holy Spirit and now he tells them to go to Jerusalem and wait there at the temple until the Spirit comes. Well, it sure sounds like Jesus is going to do something big, doesn't it? But when they ask him about restoring the kingdom, he replies in the same way he did in Mark 13, 32. Basically, only the Father knows. But this time he gives them a promise and a command. Verse 8, Acts 1, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Or in other words, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you, even to the end of the age. Or in other words, I will consummate my kingdom at the time only known to my Father, but I am establishing my kingdom now through you in the preaching of the gospel and the conversion of the nations. Now go, and I will go with you, with all my power and with all my authority to the end of the earth, to the end of the age. God's plan for Israel was always a plan for the nations. They expected him to ascend his throne in Jerusalem and Jesus ascended his throne from Jerusalem. They expected him to gather his people from among the nations to Jerusalem. To Jerusalem, Jesus was gathering his people starting from Jerusalem. They expected him to restore the land of promise centered on Jerusalem. Jesus extended the borders of his land to the very ends of the earth, moving out from Jerusalem. And this is why our mission here at DSC is to spread God's glory broader and deeper. Apparently, other of Jesus' disciples were about that same mission, and the gospel has reached Albuquerque. And so we come and go, don't we? Get on planes, fly around leave for weeks, some of us months at a time, to preach the gospel to people who have not heard or have not believed. Jesus sent his disciples to Jerusalem to wait for his spirit, and they were right to expect big things. And when that spirit arrived, did big things ever happen, even if not in the way that they would have imagined initially? Acts 2 begins the story of the rest of history between the ascension and the return of Christ 
We simply must read these first verses together. Only a chapter later, when the story of part two picks up. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound of the multitude came together, as at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each of one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in their own tongue the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They were filled with new wine. Well, that's what I call big things happening. You think that's what they were thinking too? Here is God sending his spirit to his people and peoples, gathering to himself men and women from every tribe and tongue and nation as he would do through his disciples. And then Peter preached the first post-ascension sermon ever. He stands up, and here are some outtakes from it. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This Jesus, God raised up, And of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, and here's that most quoted verse, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, Acts says, and and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness witness. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And because they had not discovered points yet, I'll summarize his sermon in three points. As promised, the spirit has come to all peoples. As promised, Christ is exalted and you were wrong to crucify him. As promised, Christ is gathering his people, so turn to him now. And if you have ever felt outside the reach of God's grace because of something that you have done, Peter here, after Jesus ascends to his Father's right hand, offers salvation in the power of the Spirit to those who called for Jesus' death. Pray to him, go to him for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of his presence in the Holy Spirit.
God is delivering people from the domain of darkness and transferring them to the kingdom of his beloved son. And he can do that for you and in you now. Never pull up Google Maps and you hit the terrain button. Other kinds of maps you can look at on the internet as well for weather patterns or temperature, geographical features, cities. What if there's a map where you could click where God is working? What if there's a map where you could click where God is worshipped? We would find him worshipped in places that surprise us by people who believe the gospel because it has gone there and it started in Jerusalem. We'd find a church in Albuquerque, New Mexico off Osuna worshiping Christ and a church in Rio Rancho this morning worshiping Christ because the gospel has gone there. Or a button for persecution of those who believe the gospel. We talked about North Korea this morning. Or the play button for the places where the gospel's never been heard. And then maybe there's one red dot or two where a Christian couple is in the bush working with a tribe to translate the scriptures for them so that they can hear. The word has come to us. The word is going out. God is doing his work. He's gathering his people by his spirit. And it is a happier thing that Jesus left and was ascended because he is at his father's right hand because he sent his spirit and because he ascended to gather his people to himself. And the fourth reason that Jesus' disciples were filled with great joy when he left is because Jesus ascended to return in glory. He did ascend to return in glory. Verses 9 and following. And when he had said these things, they were looking on. He was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into the heavens as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, angels, and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? I was like, come on, I would look into heaven. This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Bible has a lot of endings, doesn't it? Jesus on the cross says, it is finished. He rises from the dead victorious over death. He ascends and he returns. Well, the return of Jesus is the biggest ending and it is also the biggest beginning. No wonder the return of Christ is met with such fascination. In fact, Christians, disciples have been fascinated with it since this moment when Jesus departed. But though we don't know when he will return and should not speculate, we do know how he will return in great, great glory. Jesus himself said in Matthew 24 that he would come on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he would send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they would gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to another. He returns in great glory And he returns in great glory in a glorious body, the body he left with. He will return in the same way that he left. Have you ever considered that when Jesus was raised bodily from the dead, that though his glorified body is special, it is still a physical body and he remains now in that physical body? Did he not go to great lengths to prove that he had a physical body by eating broiled fish even showing them his hands with his wounds and his feet. When he ascended, he did so in his body. And where he is, is a mystery, but Jesus is now somewhere. And will be forever divinity wed to humanity. The glory of the gospel, that God himself would become a man, go to a cross, stay a man and God. Well, Jesus' return will be more devastating than any natural disaster when he does for those who are not with him and for him. And it will be more glorious than the most extravagant celebration or coronation of any merely human king over any merely geographical territory. 
Jesus' territory is the universe itself. This king's dominion includes every person. And this is no merely human king, though he is human. He is the divine human king, the son of David, the son of God. Have you bowed to this king? He is seated at the Father's right hand, whether you have bowed to him yet or not. I pray that you would. Do you know that he's at his Father's right hand after having shed his blood for you? His name is love, as we sang this morning. Come to him now while there is time for the forgiveness of your sins. For the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Christians, taste and see that the Lord is good and he has seated his Lord, Jesus, at his right hand where he is reigning and interceding for us. Well, when beginning part two, Luke could have rewound the reel to the crucifixion, right? He could have rewound the reel to the resurrection, but he rewound the reel to the ascension instead. And that's where his sequel, part two, and the rest of history begins. Here's one way to say it. If the work of Christ is the hinge of history, then the cross and resurrection is the exact point of pivot. And his incarnation and his ascension are the two hinges. It all goes together. And we want to be about the whole thing. What Christ has done, what he is doing now, and what he will do. Jesus may be out of sight, but Jesus is not out of work. He is ever working. He is reigning at his Father's right hand, deploying his spirit, gathering his people, in preparing to return in a cloud with glory just as he went. And for now, for those reasons, it is a very good thing that he is out of sight. For it was the, for the joy set before him, and it is our joy as his disciples that he does all of those things for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again that Jesus is where he is, exactly where he said he would go, and that he is doing what he is doing, exactly what you have ordained for him to do. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, Father, you have highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.